So we want to continue in our uh, lessons in union with Christ, specifically in Christology. Um, and uh, last time we were together, we looked at union with Christ um, with respect to our vital union with Christ. And the argument that I made was simply this, that there is more than apart from God declaring us to be united to His Son in times past. So remember, our decretal union with Christ means that in eternity, God says that in time and space, I will unite you to Jesus Christ. And I made the argument that, but that's not enough. We need a furthering of our union with Christ. We need a vital union. We need to be met with our bride, or rather with our groom. And I use the example of a legal uh, a marriage union where um, you have two people who signed a marriage document. Now, them merely signing the marriage document and never living together as one in a home or sharing life together, can we call that a marriage union? We can't call that a marriage union, but rather there's more that needs to be done to that union. Right? We wouldn't see that as a true marriage because they're not sharing life together. Now, sure, they're married uh, on a piece of paper, uh, but they're not actually vitally commu- uh, uh, united together. And so likewise, the Spirit, what He does to us is He He unites us. He vitally unites us to Jesus Christ, whereby we share life with Christ. And Christ shares life with us. And also said that it is Jesus Christ now that is animating you. He is causing you by His Spirit to move. So it is Christ's life lived in and through you. It lived in and through you. We want to now consider um, some of the benefits of union with Christ. John Owen says, Union with Christ is the cause of all other graces, that which we are made partakers of. They are all communicated to us by virtue of our union with Christ. Hence our adoption, sanctification, justification, fruit... Uh, um, our, the fruit that we bear, perseverance, resurrection, and glory. What Owen is saying is all the benefits that we have in Christ flow from our union with Christ. Flow from our union within Jesus Christ. Okay? Today we want to see one of those benefits of union with Christ, which is justification. Justification. The benefits of union with Christ. What is the, what is the one benefit that I receive from being united to Jesus Christ and saints? Let me tell you, um, if there's any sermon that you need to listen to, it's going to be this one. Because the, 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 what, what, where we stand and, and place our flag as Protestants over against those who believe that we can earn our salvation is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. What separates you from from the church across the street, from from that Roman Roman Catholic church, one of them is this doctrine here. That we are saved by grace, specifically through faith. Through faith alone. What is justification? If someone wants to ask you, what is justification? What is justification? Louis Barkoff says, justification may be defined as that legal act of God by which he declares the sinner righteous. On the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So when I when you think of justification, just in going further, think of justification as and let's think um, banging the gavel. God bangs the gavel upon you, sinner, saying that you are not a sinner, but you are a saint because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's justification. It's a legal 
forensic declaration, legal forensic declaration, okay? What I'm going to argue is this. The root of our justification is grounded upon the justification of Jesus Christ, whereby His perfect righteousness is imputed unto us. Again, this is the main thesis of the whole sermon today. The root of our justification is grounded upon the justification of Jesus Christ, whereby His righteousness is imputed unto us. Let's first ask, why do we need to be justified? When we think of Adam's sin in the garden, we tend to only speak of it in terms of moral corruption, meaning we tend to only focus on the result of Adam's sin, is now that humans do sinful actions. And friends, that's not wrong. I mean, we should speak of Adam's sin as a moral corruption, which leads to sinful actions in thought and in, in uh, act, uh uh, thought indeed. Paul says in Romans 8, uh, Romans chapter 3, as it is written, uh, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. The Bible is clearly, it, it speaks about the corruption of our nature as a result of Adam's sin. But friends, we must not define us as being sinners simply as those who are now inclined to sin. We must not define us being sinners as merely now all we do is sin in thought and deed. That's what makes us sinners. Or that's all of what it means to be sinners. But when Adam sinned in the garden, not only did he bring a moral corruption to our nature, but also he brought a legal status upon us. So again, not merely just moral corruption now that you sin in thought and deed, but also now there's a legal status that is placed upon your head. And that legal status is guilty. You are guilty. Each and every one of us as sinners in Adam are guilty before God. We can say that each and every one of us in our Adamic state are guilty criminals on death row awaiting death. That is your state in Adam. So, Adam's sin doesn't just bring more corruption, but also a legal status of guilt. And that legal sentence of guilt is then manifested in death. So saints, how does our legal status of guilty, right, go from or move to a legal status of innocence before God? Again, we're guilty before God. Now, how do we get out of that state? And now we are innocent before God. This is where Jesus Christ comes in the picture. Jesus Christ as the second Adam, and this is the beauty of the incarnation, as one who represents us, undergoes this judicial sentence of condemnation. He undergoes our sentence. He says, I will, I will put their guilt and place it upon my head. Now remember, saints, because of Adam's sin, we have a legal status of guilt before God, and that legal status, the punishment of that legal status, is death. Jesus Christ, then, as the one who stands in our place, is condemned for us. He is condemned for us. You might have heard it before. In our place condemned, he stood. Jesus Christ, as our representative, as our surety. He not only says that I will do all of what's required for them to gain access to God, but also I will take on their legal status of guilt, even though I am not guilty. But I represent them. And what does he do? 
He pays the punishment of our legal status of guilt, which is death. He says, I will undergo the punishment of their sin, which is death. Paul speaks of this in Romans 4.25. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, because of our transgressions, he was delivered over. In other words, Christ was delivered over to death. Jesus Christ bears our offense to God. And by bearing our offense to God, he also bears our sentence. So not only does he bear our legal status of guilt, but he also, he takes upon himself the punishment of that legal status of guilt, which is death. So what we have in the cross then is Jesus is before the world on a high mountain, right? So everyone can see, is publicly condemned. In our place. Jesus was not crucified outside of the gates. He was crucified on a high mountain. So everyone can see. That this one. Who claims to be God. Who claims to be the king of the Jews. This one is now publicly being condemned. Right? And saying this is why the resurrection of Christ is so essential. This is why the resurrection of Christ is so essential. Because what you have at the death of Christ. Is Jesus dies. And hear me now. Jesus dies as a condemned one in our place. And at Christ's resurrection, he is then vindicated. He's vindicated. Again, he dies, condemned, raised, vindicated. Or we can say, at Christ's resurrection, Jesus Christ is justified. Jesus Christ is justified. The resurrection of Christ is Christ's justification. Gerhardus Voss explains, Christ's resurrection was the de facto declaration of God in regard to him, to his being just. That is to say, at Christ's resurrection, his status of condemned criminal was overturned to a status of justified. His status of condemned criminal. Mind you, he not, he's, Christ was never a condemned criminal inherently. But as our representative, we can say that if we were looking, if we were, if we were at Golgotha's hill and we looked upon Jesus Christ bleeding for us, we can say that that one up there is justly being condemned. Now, how can we say something like that? Because he's innocent. Because he's our representative. Therefore, it is just and right that that one who is on the cross is dying. Romans 5. Verses 16 through 17, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from an offense, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. For if by the one uh, offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is he's, uh, Paul has this two, uh, two Adam Christology. He's comparing and contrasting what Adam does and what Christ does. What Adam did in the garden is he places us on this, this sentence of guilt, right? We are guilty before God. Therefore, we are now awaiting this death. Um, we're awaiting this death before God, right? Adam's one offense brings death. Because of he, uh, because of Adam's, uh, uh, sin, because of him breaking God's law, so then, what does Jesus Christ do? Jesus Christ bears that offense. He bears the offense of Adam in the garden, whereby he bears our offense in Adam in the garden. He bears that offense. 
And when he bears that offense, he undergoes the penalty of that offense, and then he's raised to newness of life. He's raised to newness of life. Paul speaks of Christ's justification in 1 Timothy 3.16 by the common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. Now notice, saints, Christ, at His resurrection, Paul says, was vindicated by the Spirit. That word vindicated simply means He was justified. Christ was justified, right? By the Spirit. He was declared righteous at His resurrection. Now you might ask, how is Christ declared righteous at His resurrection? Let me just give you two ways. Number one, Jesus Christ is declared righteous with respect to the wrongful verdict that was issued against Him by the sinful human court. Remember, Christ is being brought up, right? And then who's beside Him? Barabbas. Who do the people pick? They pick Barabbas. They don't pick Jesus Christ. At the resurrection of Christ, what you have, and this is beautiful here, it is God declaring to those sinful human courts, those ones who have wicked minds, He's declaring that you made the wrong choice. You should have picked Barabbas. He's overturning human judgment and human reason. He's saying that this one is innocent. This one is innocent. But also, secondly, He's declared righteous in the sight of God. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus Christ was not righteous at his death. But what this means is at the resurrection, God publicly declares. It's a public proclamation. Directly or indirectly? Directly, this is my beloved son. The heavens open up. In whom I'm well pleased. Indirectly, the, the thief on the cross next to Christ says what? This man has committed no wrong. Echoing the words of the Father in heaven. What's the evidence of this proclamation? That this one is righteous? Jesus Christ then is raised to new life. Gerhardus Voss says, God, through suspending the forces of death operating on Him, declared that the ultimate, the supreme consequence of sin had reached its termination. What's the result of sin? What does sin want to do to you, saints? What is sin's end goal? Death. Because you cannot come back from death. The, the thing that sin wants to do most in your life is to kill you. And once it kills you, it has gained victory over you. So then when Christ dies, sin has its way with Christ. Sin has its way with Christ. Because Christ actually dies. There is a body and soul. So he actually dies. So sin has its way, and sin thinks it's one. This is why Voss says that the supreme consequence of sin had reached its termination. In other words, resurrection had annulled the sentence of condemnation. In other words, Jesus undergoes condemnation. Sin has its way with Christ. Christ dies. But when Christ is raised to new life, that sentence of sin and death and death being the final verdict of one's life is canceled out. Why? Because one, the first fruits of a royal harvest was raised to the newness of life. So then when you were raised, so then when you are raised ultimately, saint, it's going to be really a, a vindication of not only Christ's righteousness, but your righteousness in Him. And you will be laughing at sin. Because sin thinks that when you die, it's had its way with you. 
it's not going to have its way with you. Because it didn't have its way with Christ. Thereby, it's not going to have its way with you. You will defeat sin in Christ because Christ defeated sin. At the cross, then, Jesus paid the penalty of sin as a representative as uh, for his people. And as resurrection, there was a public declaration of the full payment of sin has been satisfied. So the logic of this is this. Christ, then, is publicly before the world declared guilty of our sin, even though he's not guilty of our sin inherently. But as resurrection, he's publicly declared innocent of the charges before the world. Now, how does this relate to us and union with Christ? As I said last Lord's Day, being united to Christ means to be united to the whole Christ. So that whatever happens to Christ, we receive because we're united to him. We can think of salvation this way. Everything that you have as beneficials, as the benefits of Christ, right? First and foremost, happen to Christ's humanity. Everything that you have, again, as a benefit of Christ, adoption, sanctification, justification, glorification, first happened in the experience of, of the human Christ. And one of those great benefits that flow from our union with Christ is justification. We can say this then. Our justification is a participation in Christ's own resurrection justification. Notice how, remember, I just said, everything that we receive as a benefit, first and foremost, happens to Christ. By extension, is given to us. Our justification, then, is a justification that's a participation in Christ's justification. In other words, our union with the resurrected Christ, in our union, we share the same vindication and affirmation of Christ when he was raised in the newness of life. So when we believe upon Christ, then, that verdict of Innocent and righteous that was declared upon Jesus Christ over 2,000 years ago is declared upon you. That, that vindication, that proclamation, that declaration that this one is innocent is now transferred to you. Put another way, when Christ was raised from the dead, it was a public declaration of his righteousness. And when we trust in Christ by faith, that righteous status that Christ has is imputed unto us, where we are no longer guilty criminals, but we are children of God and saints. The basis of this is Jesus Christ. Since Christ was declared righteous, and since we are united to Him, we therefore get everything that Christ has in His humanity, which means we get His righteousness. Since Christ was declared righteous, we get all that the righteous one has. Now we have to ask, how does Christ's justification become our justification? How do we get Christ's justification? For we know that we're not justified at the cross. Don't think that. Right? You're not saved at the cross. Christ's justification is own justification. Right? And we know that we're not saved at the resurrection. Right? When Christ was raised from the dead, it's not thereby you are raised from the dead. Right? Because first and foremost, you didn't exist. Uh, but also, it was first and foremost Jesus Christ's justification. And, and, and so we can't say that we're saved at the resurrection. So then how do we receive then this thing that happened over 2,000 years ago? How do, how do, how do we, um, um, how are we engrafted into the life, death, and resurrection experience of Jesus Christ? 
Two ways. By faith and by imputation. And I'm kind of already presupposing that you know it's by the Spirit. We'll talk about that next time. Let's consider first um, faith. From my observations, there are much misconceptions concerning faith in the Christian church today. Many take faith to be some sort of word magic that gets you out of certain situations. Or faith is viewed as a supernatural feeling that helps you when all else goes, uh, when all else fails. Or sometimes faith is replaced with godly wisdom. But with regard to salvation, we see another misconception. That is, many regard faith as saving or meritorious. But saints, that is not how we are to view, uh, view the way faith is used by the Spirit. In other words, it is not your faith that saves you. Your faith doesn't save you. But it is Jesus Christ, the one whom faith unites you to, that saves you. Your faith is nothing. Your faith is empty. You just having faith, God doesn't see and says, man, that guy has good faith. I'm going to save him. No, 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 no. The basis of your salvation is Jesus Christ. The one that faith unites you to. One theologian summed up this distinction well. He said, quote, Jesus is the agent of salvation. Faith is the instrument of salvation. We must not confuse the two. Who saves you? Christ. Christ is the agent. Jesus Christ alone accomplishes uh, and justifies and sanctifies and glorifies. Not your faith. No matter how weak, no matter how strong, no matter how well you can articulate the very aspects of faith. So then what's the use of faith? What do we do with faith? Well, faith merely is the instrument. Faith is the instrument. It is the means by which the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ. Just as this microphone is the instrument by which I'm able to communicate loudly and clearly to you. Faith is the instrument then that unites us to Jesus Christ who is our salvation. Christ is our salvation. And this is what the reform have historically taught concerning faith. One example is found in the Belgian Confession, Article 22. We do not mean, properly speaking, that it is faith itself that justifies us. For faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. So strictly speaking, we are not saved because we believe. Praise God you believe. But you're not saved because you believe. But we are saved because we are united to Christ by faith. One scriptural proof of this is found in Matthew one twenty one. She shall give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It is Jesus Christ and Christ alone that saves, not your faith. But thank God that God has given you the gift of faith, because faith unites you to the one who saves Jesus Christ. Why am I bringing up this clarification and, it's, and faith's role in salvation? Well, simply put to show you that it is Jesus Christ and him alone. That is the grounds and basis of your salvation. Jesus Christ and Him alone is the sole grounds of your salvation. What's the instrumental grounds? Of course, faith. But the reason why you are freely accepted into the very throne of God, the reason why you can obtain that beatific vision is because of Christ and Christ alone. When we are united to Jesus Christ then, what happens next? The Spirit imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. Without this imputation of righteousness, we cannot be justified. Now, what is imputation? Imputation is a theological 
uh, word that most often refers to the legal accrediting of Jesus' perfect righteousness to believers by faith in order that they may have a right standing before God. So simply put, when we think of imputation, it is God giving to you what you do not have in order that you may stand before God. Think of it this way. Christ, or Adam then, when Adam said in the garden, all of his sin and guilt was imputed unto you. Thereby you carry his his sin and, and guilt. When Adam sinned then, it was credited to your account. Thereby you are sinners. So likewise, when we believe upon Christ by faith, the Holy Spirit imputes, He accredits to our account Christ's perfect righteousness. Christ's perfect righteousness. That is to say, the Spirit imputes the righteousness of Christ. He, he gives to you the righteousness of Christ, credits to your account the righteousness of Christ. And saints, when we think about this though, there's one error before we close that we must not fall into when we think about imputation and Christ's righteousness specifically. And the error is this. For it's far too often, Christ's righteousness is understood in an abstract, extrinsic way. In other words, there are many who think that there's a thing called Christ's righteousness which exists apart from Christ and it's imputed to the life of the believer. But saints, that is not how we are to think of this thing called righteousness, which happens to simply belong to Christ. And then when we believe upon Christ, it is taken out from Christ and then given to you. Rather, when we say that we receive Christ's righteousness of Christ, or when we say that we receive the righteousness of Christ, we're not, we're not receiving something extrinsic to Christ, but simply we are, we are receiving Christ himself. That's what the righteousness of Christ means. Not that you have a substance called righteousness, but you have Christ. Christ himself. Right? Christ's righteousness inheres in his person. It doesn't have an independent existence outside of Christ. You don't, you can't walk on the, you know, walk on the sidewalk and then bump into Christ's righteousness. Doesn't work that way. But it is Christ himself that you receive. So when God accepts someone, He accepts someone not because you have some thing called Christ's righteousness, He accepts someone in Christ. He accepts you in Jesus Christ. It is because we are united with Jesus Christ, thereby we share in His righteous person. It's because we are united to Jesus Christ, the righteous one, that we now are righteous in Him. In Him. Paul sums us up well in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, and being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Being found in Christ. Being, being hidden in Christ. Being located in Christ. Not some external thing outside of Christ, but something that inheres in Christ that we participate in. So much so that when God sees us, he sees his Son. That's the gospel. That's the beauty of, of the great cry of the Reformation. In closing, Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now how can Paul say something so scandalous, right? How can you know now, Paul? How can you know right now that there is no condemnation between us and God? That there is no hostility 
that I am no longer an enemy of God. How do you know that, Paul? J.K. Bill says this, Jesus' own resurrection was an end-time event that vindicated or justified him from the wrong verdict pronounced by the world's courts. The vindication of God's people against the unjust verdicts of their accusers was to happen at the eschaton. But this has been pushed back to Christ's resurrection and applied to him. What Bill is saying, saying is this, that judgment of declaration of whether you are righteous or not is meant to be reserved for the end, for the final judgment day. What Christ does, though, is this. That end-time judgment has intruded into time and space before, you know, that end-time pronouncement, and it first has happened to Jesus Christ. And everyone associated, united to Jesus Christ, does not have to wait for the end to know whether there is condemnation before, you know, between you and God. You can know right now that there is no condemnation between you and God. How can I know that? Because Jesus Christ has been vindicated and justified. He has gone before us. This is why Christ is called our first fruits, right? And everyone that comes behind him will be, there will be a, a likeness, an assimilation, a similarity between us, right? And the fruit that was harvested before us. And saints, what I present to you now is then union with Christ, right? Is, is, is really, rather I should say the benefits of Christ flow from being united to Christ. So if someone asks you, how are you justified? Because I'm united to Christ. And that's it. Let's pray.